happy to be back in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to go ahead and read this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, um, beginning in verse 35, all the way down through verse 49. This is our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. And the title of our message is Glorified Bodies for Us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35 says this, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. And there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for a star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Let's just pray once again. Lord, as we look to your word, help us to understand this passage and apply it to our, our lives. Help us to understand who you are and your greatness. And um, Father, we pray for those who may not know you, that they would see their need for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to a passage in 1 Corinthians. We've been talking about resurrection for some time. This is the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. And we're getting close to the end here, 58 verses in this, in this chapter. And as we think about this section, it's important to keep in mind that um, though we benefit from this section and we get a greater understanding of what our resurrected bodies will look like, and this is uh, pertinent for each one of us because every one of us here will die unless the Lord comes back before we die, but we, we will die. We, we, we see death, we see funerals, and questions that we have naturally come up in our mind about what will it be like? What will it be like after we die? And what, what will our resurrected bodies look like? And though we will find many answers to those questions today, the purpose of this section that Paul makes clear was really to refute some false teachers who were teaching pagan ideas, ideas that there is no resurrection of the body. And so uh, Paul was convinced that Christ's resurrection was not just a resuscitation of a corpse, but the transformation of a physical body into a glorified body. And he taught this repeatedly. One place where he taught this is in Philippians 3, verse 20, where it says, for our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so as we think about this, uh, we think, okay, so Paul taught about a resurrected body that is a transformed body, that is a physical body, but it's different than our current body. And uh, this raises all kinds of questions. Well, what happens if uh, you know someone uh, is eaten by sharks? Or what happens if... Uh, you know, there, there's a story about Roger Williams, who was a 17th century Puritan, uh, who was uh, helping in the founding of Rhode Island, actually. And uh, he was uh, buried not far from an apple tree. And what they found uh, years later is that the roots of the apple tree actually grew into his coffin and consumed his entire coffin, actually started in his skull and followed his spine and split at his legs all the way came out of his toes. And so uh, when, you, when they discovered this, uh, it was uh, uh, Merrill Tenney asked the question, uh, were those who were eating apples eating Roger? Um, I mean, what happens? You know, what happens when you think about this physical body consumed by a tree producing apples? And it's a terrible thought, right? Um, hopefully you won't have apple pie for lunch or anything. But it, when we think about this, I mean, these are, these are valid questions. We th- think about what about the Apostle Paul, who was buried and 2,000 years have gone by, and he's, he's still in the grave, and he believed in a resurrection. So how, how is this all going to work? And <clears throat> we understand from the response of Paul that these weren't just curious questions of believers, because he says, you fool. That's how he responds in uh, verse 36, you fool. And um, some versions have kind of toned that down and they've said, like, how foolish. Because we typically, when we're defending truth, don't come out and say, you fool, right? But uh, here it's in the vocative case. It's direct address. He's saying uh, very sternly, um, which, was, which was not uncommon when the person who's asking the question is asking it in a way to try and trap you or cause doubt against God and his word. In fact, Jesus told a parable where God himself said something very similar. Uh, In Luke 12, verse 16 and following, um, uh, Jesus spoke about uh, in a parable saying to them, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? And so he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater and there I'll store all my crops and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then those whose things, um, then whose will those things be which you have provided? So it is he, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And so what he was saying uh, in his parable is that those who are selfish in their ambition and not thinking about the things of the Lord are foolish. But he comes out and you fool. You're not thinking eternally. You're not eternal minded. You're in the now and present. And in our passage, there are some people who are just 
trying to tear down Scripture. They have no respect for Scripture. But the same God who created the sun, moon, and stars, and earth, the, all that's in the universe, the one who created them all out of nothing, the eternal God who is and who has always been, the God who created man out of dust, which he created the dust, and who created woman from the man's rib, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God, the God who's able to speak and the wind stops, the one who sent his son to this earth, who is God in the flesh, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life, who never sinned, never had to die, yet allowed himself to be crucified as a sacrifice for those who would trust in him and would pay for their sins. That same God who, who raised up Christ from the dead will raise up all who trust in Christ from the dead. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. It doesn't matter whether you've been eaten by sharks or fallen into a volcano or burned into the stake or consumed by an apple tree. The Lord is almighty and he's able to keep his word. And so we come to this section, verses 35 through 49 of 1 Corinthians 15, and we find four details about the future resurrection and the the future resurrected bodies that will clear up any confusion that might be, be able to help us combat a false teacher. And though we will benefit from this with our own curious questions, remember the context here are those who are trying to tear down the word of God. So the first detail about our resurrected bodies is this. Resurrected bodies are like something you know. They're like something you know, verses 35 through 38. Before we look at that text, we, we've already talked some about in verse 35, Uh, The questions are there. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Uh, These are skeptics' questions. These are pagan questions. They're they're phrased in such a way saying, this can't happen. Dead people don't rise from the grave. And if they did, what kind of bodies would they come with? And Paul responds in verse 36, you fool. And the reason they're foolish is because they've forgotten two key elements. One is... They have an example right before them every day that was common in their culture of something dying and then actually uh, being raised to life. And that was every time a seed was planted in the earth. Um, You know, when you think about seeds, we we don't plant, I mean, in elementary school, you get seeds in a cup and you learn about it in air and water and soil. It needs all of these things, right? Um, But there's a lot we don't think about. Uh, Seeds take a time where they, most seeds need to lay dormant for a while, where they, they're actually dried out, and, then, and they have an outer shell, and then those seeds are, uh, you, you, the earth needs to be tilled. The reason the earth needs to be tilled is to get oxygen into that uh, soil. The reason why oxygen is important is because it will help decay the seed. That's why you water it as well. That seed actually decay and dies and becomes something completely unlike what its product will look like. It's a dead seed in the ground. If, just think about this. If you had never heard of this, if you'd never seen this, if, if somebody says, take this, dry it out for a year, and then go dig up some soil and bury it and let it die, you would think, man, this person's off their rocker. Like, like you know, it's so far from our culture, but this was a yearly activity for most people in early Palestine who would have been you know, familiar with this and how could something die and raise again? 
I mean, not only that, but it's not like, even like you take the end product. You take a seed out of that product. You don't take a, a head of lettuce and plant it and get another head of lettuce. Or you don't take a piece of bread and plant it and get, you know, a, a new loaves are coming up. Um, what comes up decays and something completely different comes out of the ground. And so Paul uses a simple farming illustration. He says in verse 36, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. And verse 38 highlights this second element that they really missed. This is why they were foolish. They're foolish, first of all, because all around them, most of the year were crops growing that came from something that died. And so they had seen this. This was something not foreign to them, but they'd seen the principle again and again and again. But the other reason they're foolish is because they took God out of the equation. This is God. To say that, oh man, dead dead bodies can't arise from the grave because they've decayed. We're talking about God here. Um, So if God takes a seed and can allow it to deteriorate, and then out of a rotten, decomposed particle of a seed, he can raise something up that has life and is beautiful and looks completely different from the seed that was originally planted, then why do you find it difficult that somebody could put a human body in the grave, allow it to decay, and then God could raise it up to make it look like something completely different, something beautiful and glorious? So you're familiar with this. This is why you're foolish, he says. Jesus had used a similar figure in John chapter 12, verse 23. John 12, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Paul's point here is that the concept of life sprouting from something dead is not foreign to our daily lives. So that's the first detail we find is that Resurrected bodies are like something you know. Second detail we find is resurrected bodies are not like anything you have. They're not like anything you have. They're different from anything you currently know. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. And there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. And there is the glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Verse 42. So a a common response from people when you start talking about, hey, you're going to be raised from the dead. They're like, I don't want to be raised from the dead. I, you know, I've got a knee replacement. I don't, I don't want to have limp around in heaven. And I don't, I don't want, you know, uh, uh, you know, I've got too much. Uh, I want more decay. I want, I want a new body, right? And there is a new body and it's going to be different. And here he, he begins with, uh, verse 38 by, by talking again, using the illustration of a seed, each seed, Each of the seeds uh, has a body of its own. And after that, Paul says, all flesh is not the same flesh, which is obvious to us, right? I mean, this is to a right-thinking person. It's not like you're driving down the road and your wife's next to you and you put your arm around her and you start rubbing the back of her neck and you feel scales. And you're like, hmm, that's interesting. And, you know, I mean, it'd be surprising, wouldn't it, if you reach down to hold her hand and there's a fin and, uh, you know, it's clammy and... 
you know, or if you have a baby and instead of nursing it or giving it a bottle, it, it's born with a beak and it uh, splits its head back and wants you to regurgitate food into its beak. Like, I mean, that would be weird, little feathers coming out of its head. We know this. This is, this is, not, this is not rocket surgery, right? This is not something where, where we're like, oh, man, that's, this is weird. I, I'm a human and I have a child who's also a human, Right? When we think about even DNA, it's amazing what they've, what they've discovered in each human cell. Human DNA has over 3 billion base pairs. It's been estimated that the amount of information in every human cell can be compared to the information that you would find in a thousand books, each book having 500 pages each. If each a 500-page book, book has 3,000 words, which means that DNA has the information, if you're putting it in that, equivalent to 3 million words, every cell of DNA. And you know what? Cattle DNA is different than human DNA. And fish DNA is different than bird DNA. This, I mean, th- this idea that somehow we're missing these transitional species when we have completely different DNA that makes up each species. It's got to be a reprobate mind. You ask yourself, what makes somebody want to believe in evolution? And I would propose to you that one of the chief motivating factors is people don't want to deal with their own sin. If I deny evolution, if I deny that there is, if I, if, I, if I have to admit that there is a God and that this is his word and that he's revealed himself to us and that he is holy, I know I'm not holy and therefore I'm going to have to deal with my sin. And rather than deal with my sin, I would rather believe something completely ludicrous and keep my sin. And Paul just puts it out there. And this isn't, this isn't new information in the Bible either. I mean, you go back to Genesis chapter one, listen to verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass, the, the herb that yields its seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields its fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Genesis one twenty one. and so God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves which, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And so it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind and cattle according to its kind and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So there are many different kinds of bodies with flesh. But not only that, he uses another illustration. He talks about heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars. And... uh, So he goes on, he says, there are also heavenly bodies, verse 40, and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another, and there is the glory of the sun, and a glory of the moon, and a glory of the stars, and stars differ from star in glory. Now, we know that true stars are actually suns, but many of the, the lights that we see at night and say, oh, look at that star, it could be a planet, which is reflecting the light from a sun. And we know that the moon doesn't produce its own light and that earth doesn't produce its own light. But, but here we're not talking about the substance. Here he's talking about the glory, the splendor. And he's, he's basically saying that 
every star is glorious and it has a different glory than the sun and a different glory than the moon. And so you shouldn't be surprised that there are differences in creation, in what God can create. In fact, interesting, uh, Donald Peaty has written, uh, like flowers, the stars have their own colors. As you first upward glance, all gleam white as frost crystals, but single out this one and one for observation, you will find a subtle spectrum in the stars. The quantity of their light is determined by their temperatures. In the December sky, you will see uh, Aldebaran as a pale rose, Rigel as a bluish white, and Betelgeuse as an orange to topaz yellow. So, I mean, just as flowers have different shades and colors and snowflakes are unique, every star is different, and God creates them with different glory and different splendor. And he sums up in verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. So not only is the resurrected body something that is, is something similar to what you've seen, it's also unlike anything you know because it will be much more glorious. Its splendor will be greater and better, which is good news and leads us to a third detail. Um, uh, verses 42 through 44, and that is that resurrected bodies are better than everything you've experienced. They are better than everything you've experienced. So it says in verse 42 in the middle there, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So we have four sets of contrasts here in these couple verses, verses 42 through 44. And we see these contrasts that tell us that our glorified bodies are going to be much better than our earthly bodies. The first set of contrasts is perishable versus imperishable. It's clear to us that our bodies are perishing. A couple of months ago when I was diagnosed with um, congestive heart failure, uh, the diagnosis seemed rather daunting. You know, hey... You're, you're dying. But I was dying before I got that diagnosis. And I will only live a day, I'm not going to live a day more, or a day less than the Lord wants me to live. And ultimately, um, the difference in my life right now over the past two months is every day, twice a day, as I take these pills or as I think about the things going on throughout the day, I'm aware that each day is a gift by God. I'm aware that my body is perishing and I could live another 40, 50 years. I don't know, probably not 50 years. That's probably pushing it a bit much. But um, uh, uh, there there are people who live for decades with CHF, not to be confused with Children's Hunger Fund. But um, uh, when you think about, uh, and there are people who die within years who get it. But none of us is guaranteed another day. We are all perishing. I remember uh, when our daughter was a year and a half old. There was a time where th- she had three days, she got really sick and she was uh, throwing up, couldn't keep anything down. And we took her to the hospital because we were concerned she was uh, dehydrated. And they treated her and gave her some fluids. And, you know, you have this little one and a half year old baby that one day looks like a flower full of life and three days later looks like it's wilting. It's wilting. She's wilting. Uh, But when you think about this, we are all perishing. But the new body will be built imperishable. It will never die. It will be so much better. 
1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Or think about the closing of this chapter down in verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. We're thinking about a life that is eternal and a body that is given to us that is incorruptible, immortal, imperishable. There's a second set of contrasts in these verses. Verse 43 says, uh, dishonor and glory. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Again, he's still using the farming imagery here where you put the body in the grave in dishonor. Why is it in dishonor? Because the wages of sin is death. The reason that we die is because we are sinners and death is a reminder of sin and dishonor. We're born sinners because Adam was a sinner and he is our father. And when we think about um, that dishonor, it's one of the reasons why it's painful and it's hurtful. And and we think about this um, because we have bodies that were initially built for pleasing and honoring and praising God, but because of sin, those bodies are decaying, they're dying, they're, they're perishing. And so... They're dishonored. They're not able to do what they were initially created to do. But this new body will be able to because it will be raised in glory. It will be splendorous. A third comparison is between weakness and power. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And we say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not weak. I'm very strong. Yeah, but how long is that going to last? You know, you You could be as fit as you possibly can, and you could be down the very next day. Um, We think about uh, weakness. Every body that's put in the grave is weak. There's nothing in it that has strength or power. And yet, it will be raised in power. I think about uh, a doctor friend of mine who said he got a kidney stone. And he said he was in agony. He was on the floor reeling in pain. And he said he finally passed it. He said it was a grain of sand he could barely see. And he's like, he's like, if it just takes that to get me down, you know, our bodies are frail. And so, but they will be raised in power. Think about Revelation 21, verse 4. Listen to this verse. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. The weakness has passed away and the power has actually entered in. Fourth comparison is between the natural and the spiritual. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I think this would have been really hard for pagans to have accepted. The natural body is not a problem. I mean, the natural body is the one that is built for this planet, for this nature, for the air. We have a sin nature. We talk about that, but um, we we think about our material body. You know, somebody uh, goes up into space. They don't just wear flip-flops and shorts and say, okay, I'm ready to go. Let's go, because they're leaving where their environment, where they were built for. 
And so they are not going to be able to survive without, you know, all kinds of extra equipment and apparatus that helps them to breathe and everything, walk and weightlessness and all that. So, so it, it's quite a, quite a venture. But when we think about our natural body, not made for the heavens, but our spiritual body will be. It is a spiritual body, not to be confused with a non-material body. When he uses the word spirit, he's not talking about, uh, whoa, it's just, you know, it's invisible or it's, uh, uh, you know. Uh, he, the word body in, from verses 35 to 44 is mentioned 10 times. So he's talking about a physical body here. We know that he's not just talking about a disembodied spirit because Jesus, when he returned, when he, when he was raised from the dead and he appeared to his disciples. Listen to these words from Luke 24, verse 39. His disciples thought he, they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus said, behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So the difference between a natural body and a spiritual body is that the natural body is suited for living in this physical realm of earth. But... Uh, a spiritual body is designed for heavenly living. Let me read uh, Luke 20, verse 34. And Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain of that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So there's something about their glorified body that's different than your natural body here, and it's one that will be like angels, like a heavenly being. It will be perfectly equipped for heavenly, spiritual, supernatural living. So let's move on to the fourth detail in our passage that helps us understand what resurrected bodies will be like. And the fourth one is resurrected bodies are patterned after someone you know. They're patterned after someone you know, verses 45 through 49, which says this, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spirit is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven, as is the earthy, so are also those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so are also those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So Paul shares these elements of two men, Adam and Christ. According to human history, from our human perspective, it was Adam, the natural man, who came on first in the stage of human history. Jesus, the spiritual man, came on second. Uh, When we are born like Adam as natural beings, we are very much like our father, Adam. We have a, a sin nature. But when we're born again and we become God's spiritual children, sin no longer dominates our lives. And for the first time, this is the amazing thing about being born again, and that is for the first time, you can actually glorify God. Whereas before... Everything you did, which was for your own selfish desire, didn't glorify God. Everything was tainted with sin. 
When we read verses like um, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. I think what's amazing is that we often use that verse in the negative when something terrible has happened. But what's amazing is that even the things that we do which sing praise to the Lord or glorify God or are kind to others, when we do that, that also works together for his good. It's amazing. And so um, we think about um, the resurrected body, Christ's body is a prototype for all other resurrected bodies. Take a look at verse 48 again. As is the earthy, that is, as is that's what's from the dust, so are also those who are from the dust or who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, that future. We will have a body like Christ's resurrected body. What was that like? Um, Well, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 20 because I was reading this earlier this week and I just thought, just even reading this highlights some of the difference of what does a resurrected body look like? I'm gonna begin... Uh, in verse 11. Verse 11 of John chapter 20, Mary is there at the tomb, remember? And it says in verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So here she sees the resurrected Jesus. He's standing there. She doesn't know it's him. Until he's ready to reveal to her that it is him, uh, she doesn't recognize him. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? So we're seeing that this resurrected body that Jesus had actually had the ability to, to speak and to communicate. So he's speaking. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I, and I will take him away. So she recognizes this guy. He doesn't look translucent. She thinks he's a gardener, a common person just there to work. So there's something about his body that she's not able to recognize who he is until, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. Then we learned something else. This is a physical body. Once he chose to reveal who he was to her and so that she could see who he was in his spiritual body, in his resurrected body, She not only recognized him, but grabbed onto him and was clinging to him. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and and your Father and my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord that he has said these things to her. Verse 19, so it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. So did you catch the context here? The doors are locked. They're afraid. They're in a closed room. And Jesus enters that room. And he speaks again. 
So he's able to speak. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced and saw the Lord when they saw the Lord. So there was, again, he could show him his physical body and, it, and they were able to recognize him. And it had attributes and similarities to the same body that they had seen crucified. Verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me. I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is uh, symbolic of what was going to happen when they would receive the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting here is they physically felt his breath. So he's able to, to breathe on them in this resurrected body. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any of their sins, they have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any sins, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So when the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but we have, uh, but, he, but he said to them, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of his nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas says, until I actually stick my finger into his hand, which is gruesome, right? I'm not going to believe until I actually can, can touch him. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them and Jesus came, the doors having been shut. All right, again, boom. This is, this is a body that is unlike any body that we have because uh, it can go into a room that's completely closed and yet it can be touched. So is it physical? Yes. Can it do things that our body can't? Yes. How can it do that? I don't know. It's a resurrected body. Um, and Jesus said, peace be with you. Again, he's able to communicate. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger, see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving and believing. What does Thomas do? He runs up and he sticks his hand right in his side. No, he worships him. He cries out, my Lord and my God. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, verse 28. Jesus said to him, because you have seen and you have believed, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. We could go through other passages, but what we find is that this resurrected body that our Lord had could eat fish, could talk, could travel and transport over distance and time seemingly instantaneously, could walk on water, could defy what we know about physics and walking through walls. Um, so it was a body. It was one that was at some times able to be recognized when he wanted to be recognized. At other times, they thought he was somebody completely different, just a man walking on the road to Emmaus. And so that is, says Paul, that is a picture of what this future body will look like because it will be like Christ's body, just like our physical bodies now are similar to Adam's body. So we've learned that resurrected bodies are like something you know, verses 36 through 38. They're not like anything you have, verses 39 through 42. Uh, And then they're better than everything you've experienced, uh, verse 42b through 44. And they're patterned after someone you know. But the real question is, Will you have one of those bodies or will you be raised at the great white throne judgment in a body that is built for destruction? 
And the difference is those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ as their Lord and Master and are genuine believers in Him will have resurrection bodies. This is our hope. This is why it says in verse 56 of 1 Corinthians 15, which Lord willing we'll look at next week, why it says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is why we also don't mourn like pagans mourn who have no hope. But we can mourn because differently, though we will miss people for a time, we trust in God's eternal plan. And we believe in a resurrection, not only the resurrection of Christ, which of course you believe if you are a believer, but a future resurrection for each believer is what the Bible teaches. So we have some time here at the end. Any questions? Yes. So actually, uh, so the question is, is this after the second coming that we get these bodies? Kind of a trick question because when we, I would differentiate the second coming between the rapture, okay? So uh, the Bible teaches 1 Thessalonians 4 of a future rap- rapture. And remember, the, the problem, just turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. The problem was that the church in Thessalonica actually thought that some people were going to miss the rapture because they'd already died. And so Paul writes to them, um, and let's see here. First Thessalonians four. Um, it says, um, verse thirteen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that. You will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you that by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will proceed, will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so we believe that those who are alive at the, at the second coming of the Lord, that is at the rapture of the Lord, they, those who are alive, first the graves will be opened of the believers and their bodies will be taken and, and, and raised up into heaven in their glorified bodies. And um, we, we, we also, uh, and then those who are alive, their bodies will be taken, not just their souls, their bodies will be taken up into heaven. And at, at that point, they would get their glorified bodies as well. So then there are seven years of terrible tribulation in which thousands of Jews repent and say, we missed the boat twice. Jesus was here the first time and we, didn't, we killed him and he came and the, the Christians said he'd come a second time and we didn't believe it. And then he came for them. And we know from, from the Bible now, from the New Testament, that He's actually going to come again and reign on this earth. Zechariah 12 through 14, in chapter 14, it says his feet will actually come down on the Mount of Olives, be split in two, which hasn't happened yet. That's the second coming, which ushers in a thousand-year reign. And the believers come down with him, again, in their resurrected bodies and have a special place in the millennial kingdom. Yeah. 
So in the millennial kingdom, you might have some people who during that seven-year tribulation get saved, and many of them will be martyred. There'll be 144,000 Jewish martyrs that will have a special place in the kingdom, according to Revelation. But when you, when you think about um, those, uh, there'll be others who maybe survive the tribulation. I would say go to Malawi. If there's one place, if, if, if I'm wrong about my eschatology or if I'm, if I'm preaching to those who are unbelievers and you hear this and you've got this and you can still download this because there's power and you're not driving horses around or whatever, but, but if, you, if you're hearing this, go to Malawi and find a cave and just hide there until the tribulation's over or go down to 666 headquarters and start preaching Christ and go straight to heaven. I mean, it's, it's your choice. Uh, but if, if you want to... If you want to actually uh, survive, if you end up coming to faith in Christ and you survive the tribulation and you enter into the period of the, the, the millennium as a human in an unglorified body, you might still get married. You might have kids and they have kids and they have kids and they have kids. And uh, everyone who begins the millennium will be a follower of Christ because Armageddon happens at that beginning and everybody who's against him will be annihilated by Christ. So the millennium starts out really great with Christ ruling. And yet we know that at the end of the thousand years, according to Revelation chapter 20 and 21, that there's a, there's a, a rebellion that swells up. And those would be the descendants of those natural men during that thousand-year period who, even though Christ is ruling, they still deny that he's God because the heart of man is sinful. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Yeah. So I've talked about cremation a little bit before. Um, There's nothing in the Scripture that prohibits cremation. It's really an issue of preference among believers. I prefer burial because I like the picture that is painted in 1 Thessalonians 4 of graves being opened. If anybody tells you the rapture has happened, go find graves of Christians, and if they're not opened, the rapture hasn't happened. So I think, I think it's, it's, it's a great picture. It's also a great opportunity for unbelievers to go to a funeral where a body is actually laid into the grave as a seed that someday will come out as a resurrected body. So I think it's a great opportunity. I don't think it's sin to be cremated. And I think like, like God can put everything back together because he's God. Um, I think it's an issue of preference. Um, if you want to read more about it, there's a great little booklet by Lorraine Botner. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, on, it's on cremation versus burial, I think is the title of it. All right? And he argues for burial. Um, but I, think, I still think it's an issue of preference. I don't think we should be legalistic about it. Other questions? Yes? Okay, so Enoch and Elijah came, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, so, so they, I, I don't know when their bodies will be uh, glorified or what, and I don't actually know. Um, Old Testament saints, I think, went, uh, according to Luke's gospel, to a place of paradise um, that is different from being raised up in heaven. And so uh, there were some at the end of Matthew's gospel who appeared in Jerusalem on the way up. I think maybe they got their resurrected bodies then. I don't know about Old Testament saints. Uh, It's possible. I mean, obviously, some Old Testament saints um, are in the grave. Their bodies are in the grave. And so 
they will be resurrected. I think Jerusalem is going to be, I mean, the whole um, east side of Jerusalem where all those tombs are at, it's going to be a wreck. Um, But I think that um, uh, we need to keep in mind here that though we're talking about a physical body and a physical uh, glorification, that there's no such thing as soul sleep, that those saints are... To be absent from the body is to be with the Lord, is what Paul said. Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So if you die, uh, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure how this works, because again, we're talking about uh, heaven that is outside of the realm of earthly time. And so it gets a little bit confusing in my mind, and I'm okay with God being bigger than I am. But in my mind, I sort of feel like my grandfather who died in 1984... I remember I was at his funeral um, uh, that perhaps, let's say, I live to see the rapture and my body's taken up and I'm worshiping around the throne and I see my grandfather. I said, hey, grandpa. And he says, he says, great to see you. And I say, uh, you know, and, and it's as though we both just got there. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that sometimes when we try to think about our own human terms and even the laws of physics and things like that. It just doesn't fit into what the Bible talks about as far as the future goes. Okay, those are good questions. And I'm glad that nobody's here just being antagonistic and saying, there will be no resurrection of the dead because then I would have to say, you fool. (laughs) Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this passage, which, which makes it so clear. There are many questions we still have, and yet everything we need to know, we know, we understand. We're thankful for the future hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, may that ease our pain and suffering today as we think about your ultimate plan and what glorifies you the most. Use us, Father, as lights in this world, in a world that actually has so little hope, because without you, there is no hope. And so I pray, Father, that even the way we look at death and suffering and our hope in the future glory and future resurrection will be so confident and so sure and so different than what the world would expect that they would want to to learn more, that you would open the eyes of their hearts to see their sin and they would turn and trust in you and that your name would be exalted because of that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.